and welcome to Higher Justice, a podcast where we talk about power, privilege, and activism in higher education. I'm Dr. Nicole Martin. And I'm Dr. Ashley Sorrell. Today, we're talking to Dr. Olivia Swedberg-Yinger, Assistant Professor of Music Therapy and Director of the Music Therapy Program here at the University of Kentucky. During our chat with Dr. Yinger, we discussed the process of coming into racial consciousness, how theory meets practice, and what it means to teach students to sit with and work through the difficulty of racial dialogue in the classroom. Just one quick note, you might hear some strange editing in this episode. It was an early morning interview and we were still waking up, trying to find our words and form coherent thoughts, but it's a good conversation. We hope you enjoy. Dr. Olivia Swedberg-Yinger is an assistant professor of music therapy and also the director of the music therapy program here at the University of Kentucky. She also serves as a diversity and inclusion officer for the University of Kentucky College of Fine Arts. Her research interests include procedural support, music therapy, neonatal and pediatric music therapy, music and gerontology and music therapy for individuals with neurological disorders. That was a mouthful. Dr. Yanger, <laughs> thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you how you got into music therapy. Yeah. Uh, well, both of my parents are musicians and music was a big part of my life growing up. So I knew I wanted to do something with music, but I didn't necessarily want to perform or teach. I also took a psychology class in high school that I was just fascinated by, and I um, volunteered with the Best Buddies program, and I thought, you know, I'd really like to do something to help people, I'm not sure what. So I was kind of deciding between music and psychology and found out that music therapy was an option. I had a friend who told me about it, and um, it just so happened that there was a great program at one of the public universities in the state where I grew up in Florida. So it was... uh, it was very exciting to learn about it and find that there was something that combined my love of music and my desire to help people. And do you play any musical instruments yourself? I do. So piano was my major instrument. Um, Auditioning for college, I auditioned on piano. Um, But as music therapists, we also play guitar and we sing. Okay. So how did you come to your teaching role? You mentioned at first you weren't sure if you wanted to teach. Um, So how did you come into this role, into the classroom? And if you could talk a little bit about your approach in teaching music therapy. Sure. I I think uh, when I was in high school, I I knew I didn't want to teach music like my mother did. So it was one of the career paths in in college for a musician. You could do music education. And I saw how hard my mother worked. And I thought, I don't know that that's for me. Um, The funny thing is, after I became a music therapist, I ended up teaching in the classroom and getting a master's in music ed and essentially for a very small time doing what my mom did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it and had so much respect for her, but I thought I want to work with people one-on-one. But I think that sort of, uh, that experience sparked a love of teaching. Um, and just thought I want to teach college students how to be music therapists. Mm -hmm. So I got to teach guitar classes uh, in my master's program and just really enjoyed working with college students. And I also had some fantastic mentors when I was in my uh, university training programs. Mm 
um, who encouraged me to continue. You know, I, I didn't go into my undergraduate program thinking, I want to get a master's and then a PhD and then teach. You know, I, I really, I don't know that I would have gotten a PhD if it weren't for my mentors who I think um, saw more in me than I did in myself at the time. Yeah, yeah that's really important. Um, I want to talk to you about what it's like working with um, a young adults uh, in the classroom and, you know, as music therapists. What is it that you particularly find enjoyable about working with that group of people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, well, specifically what I get to do here, I'm, I'm, I think I'm really fortunate because um, we only have a graduate program, so it's by nature smaller. So I get to give my students a little more uh, individual attention, ha- have more time to do that. Um, I enjoy teaching them about research, um, even if they don't go on to be researchers or to uh, to get a PhD or to stay in academia, but just the ability to read something and think about it critically and to find good information. I think that's so important, uh, whether your major is music therapy or, or anything else. So I, I'm, I enjoy um, getting to talk to my students about being good consumers of information. Um, being a music therapist involves listening and empathy and one point that I make to my students in all of my classes is that I want what you learn in here to somehow transfer to other areas of your life. So if you just if you learn something and it stays in the classroom, then I feel like we haven't done our job as educators. So from day one, I'm encouraging my students to think about how can you connect what we're talking about to your practicum, to other classes, uh, maybe to your life outside of here. Uh, so. That's my hope, that some of the the things that my students learn as therapists, to listen, to empathize, um, to show compassion to other people, uh, that that will transfer not just to their clinical practice, but also to their lives. So your approach is from theory to practice and beyond the classroom, if we were going to put that sort of... um Put your ideas in a linear sort of way. Yeah. It's theory to practice yeah. to beyond. That's a great way to put it. Okay. There's a lot of discussion occurring now around teaching empathy mm-hmm. to students. Um, I'm wondering if you find yourself, because you are working with graduate students in a sense, mm-hmm. but do you teach empathy or teach how to have compassion? Is there a way in which you approach that? Is that something that can be taught? is kind of the question. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I have the answer. There are probably people who have studied it more than I have. Um, I think I'm fortunate in that, you know, the students who come into my program, um, I think they already, in order to to want to do music therapy, have to have a certain level of empathy. Um, So I don't know that I have to do all that much with the students that I'm working with. I don't know if I had the answer to can you teach empathy. I think I'd be. It's just a discussion very... that's occurring within um, fa- the faculty development field right now. Yeah. Is um, this idea of teaching empathy, and it's pretty much geared around undergraduate students, right? Um, and how and if you should do that, um, and if it is something that can be taught. So I was just curious because that's like a core part of 
you know, music therapy and what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And it's a conversation that's also happening in relationship to discourse about race in the classroom, too. Mm -hmm. Like specifically, how do you teach empathy for students when you're having discussions around race? Right. Yeah. Um, And speaking of that, um, so we've been talking quite frequently since the fall semester about race in the classroom. And Mm -hmm. I'm interested if you could possibly share how race became visible in your work Mm -hmm. as a music therapist or as an educator very broadly. Sure. Um, I remember my first semester teaching here, which was my first semester out of my PhD program, so I came here right after uh, finishing my doctoral work, a student said to me, I had a student who was uh, biracial black, who said to me, what do I do if I go into a, a hospital room and I'm treating a patient who isn't comfortable with me as a therapist because I'm black? And I had had the privilege to not think too much about that before, and it, I, I didn't feel completely prepared to answer it. I mean, I, I, I gave her the best advice that I could at that point, but I thought this is something I need to think about a little bit more and to read about. Um, so that was one of the real experiences for me where I started thinking more about race in my work. Um, Recently, just this past year, I feel like I've become a lot more aware and a lot more comfortable talking about it, or at least comfortable being uncomfortable talking about race in um, in my work. And I've tried to really incorporate discussions of race and privilege in really every class that I teach. Yeah. And can you, how many years was it between that initial moment with the student and, you know, the past year where you said you've started to feel more comfortable being uncomfortable about race Four, four years yeah I think that's really important to highlight mm-hmm. just because I think one of the things that Ashley and I are trying to do when we talk to people about discussing race in the classroom is that the conversation is difficult yeah. race has a very charged history in this country and to bring that into the classroom in ways that it hasn't been brought into the classroom before right is going to be hard right and going to be uncomfortable um so thank you for letting us know how how many years it you know how many years it's it's taken to start to um feel a little bit more comfortable you're welcome yeah i wish it were sooner but you know and i i remember the year before last having this moment where i thought i know i need to talk more about race with my students and i just don't know how and i'm just not comfortable and i really um, that, you know, I'm not proud of that. <laughs> I, I kind of, I think I avoided talking about it for a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it is a progression and that's something, Nicole, that in, in our conversations, you've been really helpful in encouraging me to think about and to share with other people that it is, it's not something that happens overnight. It's not a box that we check where we say, okay, I've got this now. You know, it's, it's something that we continue working on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So race, discussing race in the classroom, you know, does bring a sort of, for for the instructors, a sense of um, feelings of un- 
you know, not being completely comfortable, fears of students' reaction. Um, the other side of that is privilege, which also right. kind of invokes um, a little bit of a fear of instructors to talk about privilege in the classroom. Can you uh, address the ways in which you um, encourage students to see their ways in which they are privileged and maybe ways in which they're not as well? Sure. Um, I remember a few years ago at a, a conference asking some of my colleagues who've been teaching a little bit longer than I how do you talk to your students about privilege? How do you talk to them about race? And um, a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Melita Belgrave, who teaches at Arizona State University, uh, recommended a social distance scale that uh, she's modified with her students. So I use that um, to help my students realize where their comfort level is. And then I follow that up with uh, a privilege survey. Uh, it's I, it's an activity that was created through um, University of Colorado at Boulder. So I, the privilege survey that I used is similar to the privilege walk uh, that people may have heard of. Uh, so there are statements about different types of privilege. And if they, in the privilege walk, if that statement applies to you, you take a step forward. Um in the privilege survey I, that I have my students do, I, they fill it out on paper and reflect on it. I'm thinking about actually incorporating the privilege walk instead, because I've uh, I've not done it, but I've I've heard that actually seeing the distance can be really powerful for students. Um, but that the privilege survey has been has sparked some important conversations for my students. It has questions not only about race but about uh, socioeconomic status, uh, gender, uh, sexual orientation, religion, language. And so some of the things that my students hear about, they've never really thought about before. And not to be honest, I hadn't until I saw this survey as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, those two things have been really helpful, the social distance scale and the um, privilege survey. The social distance scale I've used to talk about what the ideal social distance is in the therapeutic relationship. So that's how I tie it into privilege by talking, you know, thinking about power and privilege dynamics when the therapist and the client um, are, are different in, in various areas of identity. Mm -hmm. And what's the ideal social distance? You know, is it on the scale that I use? Uh, there are levels of distance, like, you know, I would be comfortable being married to this person, uh, being a close friend, being coworker, being neighbor, mm -hmm. having them in my country. And so the therapeutic relationship isn't exactly like any of those. So that's an interesting thing that I talk to my students about, too, where how comfortable do you need to be? Um, I'm also able to tie that into our code of ethics, our music therapy code of ethics, which talks about, you know, being aware of any characteristics that might impede the therapeutic relationship. And so being aware of privilege is really important because that is something that if you're not aware of it could impede the therapeutic relationship. So that's, I'm lucky that I have that uh, to tie into discussions of privilege. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, our, our statements of non-discrimination in our code of ethics, mm -hmm. I'm able to tie those into the discussions as well. So you're tying um, you're tying the learning outcomes for your students directly into 
well, the, what am I trying to say? The, there's something systemic that's already built into what music therapists are supposed to do in their practice that you are able to tie the learning objective directly to. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. We also have an advanced competency. So the American Music Therapy Association has entry-level competencies and advanced competencies. And the advanced competencies are the ones that we address during master's programs. Uh, As program directors, we get to pick and choose which advanced competencies we want to focus on. And uh, recently, AMTA added a competency related to social justice. So I've been able in my master's courses to focus on discussions related to racial and social justice. And AMTA is? Uh, The American Music Therapy Association. They're our approving body. So they, uh, they generate the competencies that guide our curriculum for music therapy programs. I know, Nicole, I've mentioned to you earlier that I was a little bit nervous about coming in here because I feel like I'm still so new at this. And there are people who've been doing it so much longer and so much better that, you know, I think feeling nervous here kind of echoes my feeling of discomfort when I'm talking to my students about race, because what if I make a mistake? What if I say something wrong? You know, and I think acknowledging that can be helpful, that 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 fear, that that anxiety exists. I mean, that's part of the reason why you're such a valuable interview is because a lot of professors, even seasoned professors, are where you are still. They're still very... Um, worried about saying the wrong thing you know yeah and I would like to add I think I think I should practice what I preach here and say that one of the things that we say to faculty members who come and talk to us is like situate yourself in the discomfort so for me the discomfort is that as somebody who thinks about race in the classroom and race and pedagogy all the time I feel like there are other people who think about race generally and broadly all the time as well. And are, I mean, I, I feel like there are extra eyes on me, us, because the second that we put this out into the world, it becomes something that mm-hmm. can be interrogated, picked apart, critiqued. And it's like, well, the critique makes us better, but also it's, it's a difficult conversation to have. Right. It's it just hard. Right. And I still have, I'm, I'm new too, I still have those same fears of yeah. saying the wrong thing, um, of alienating certain students. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I feel you. I, yeah. I'm still in that spot too, you know, because I'm still growing and trying to um, learn the, the best way in which to do it. Nicole always tells me there's no right way. but <laughs> <laughs> There is no right way. So it's hard. It's hard work. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this, in spite of, you know, being uncomfortable, because I think it fits in with that theme of being comfortable with discomfort, talking about important things. Uh, But I also think about something, Nicole, that you said when I talked to you last fall about talking to my students about race, um, which was to you encouraged me to share with them. My per, a little bit about my progression and my development in becoming more aware of racial injustice. And that was so helpful with my students. You know, I don't know that it was perfect. Would I, you know, are there things I might want to try differently in the future? Sure, but it was so helpful. So my hope is that even if 
I stutter on my words and I don't know what to say this morning that someone will find something helpful mm-hmm. in what we're talking about. That's my hope too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you can you share how you after our conversation in the fall? Can you share how you structured the how you went about structuring the lecture um, and the steps you took toward walking your students through sort of enacting or enacting you know some of the things that we talked about? Sure. So the timing of it was perfect because I talked to you last fall right before our national music therapy conference. And all of my students attended the conference. I had a class of six or seven students, and they were all going. So our national organization has a new diversity and multiculturalism committee, and they had several uh, presentations on race and multiculturalism and privilege. And so I told my students that if they attended one of the panel presentations, Uh, and came back and were prepared to talk about it that I'd take a question off of their quiz. So they all went to the presentations and I got to go to one that most of my students went to. And so we had a discussion when we got back about this panel conversation, which at some points was a little tense. Um, And my students responded to that. You know, they said, it was real, I felt uncomfortable. It felt like this panelist was angry at one point. so I kind of talked them through that and said, well, why do you think he might be angry? Why, you know, why, let's talk about that. Um, th- so that was really helpful. I'm trying to think about how I structured the conversation now. Um, it's okay if you can't, that's, I'm, I'm asking you to recall something that happened six, uh, <laughs> six months ago. <laughs> but it seemed like you really um, used probing questions to students, you know, who are feeling uncomfortable in a certain aspect of, say, the um, conference presentation. But this probably a therapist in you, you know, trying to right. get to why those feelings of being uncomfortable exist or why we're uncomfortable when someone is expressing anger towards, you know, what they see as an injustice, you know, and kind of unpacking that and pulling that apart. Do you find that to be an effective strategy? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. With the probing questions. uh, Yes, I definitely. Oh, so I think in that conversation with my students after the conference, um, one thing that was really helpful was that I had more information to share with them. So this was another thing that Nicole, when we met in the fall, you recommended that I not only share with my students how I've come to this point and my own progress, but also to be able to share with them information about racial injustice and where it comes from and how it affects people. Um, And so I, had more of that information going into this conversation so that when my a student said something that was based on misinformation I was able to provide accurate information to help correct misconceptions Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that I did on the way to and from the conference was to listen to uh, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates which had been on my list for a long time Um, and Dear White America by Tim Wise, which had a lot of the information that I was looking for. 
Um, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about teaching students how to be good consumers of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly in the socio-political, socio-historical context that we're living in right now, um, consumption of knowledge is a key issue for instructors. How right. do I make sure my students are getting the correct right information mm-hmm. so when you so since the fall and moving into the spring um thinking about how when you're entering in a, into a particular conversation you come armed with a particular set of knowledge mm-hmm. and a particular set of data mm-hmm. have you experienced pushback or um, disagreement with information that you provide your students a little bit last semester, not as much as I think other professors might, just because of the nature of the students who I work with. Um, but I, I wanted to prepare myself for that, for the possibility of pushback. So one thing I did this semester, and this is something new, um, in a class that I teach where we focus on reading and reviewing and understanding research articles, The very first week, uh, I talked to my students about cognitive biases, and we played cognitive bias bingo. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) we talked about a number of different cognitive biases, and then I had little cards that had the name of the bias and a picture that went with it. And uh, they had cards that they could put in any order to create their bingo sheet. And then I read examples within music therapy practice or... Uh, things that they might encounter when reading research, so statements that they might see that are indicative of some kind of bias. And so they had to identify the cognitive bias in order to turn over their card to try to get bingo. So that's been really helpful, I think, um, because I've had students come back in our discussions this semester and say and, and reference that and say, oh, that's confirmation bias or, you know, in things that we're discussing Um, Or sometimes they'll bring up something that they heard in the news or something that happened in their practicum. Mm -hmm. And um, they're able to pinpoint those biases, which makes me so happy (laughs) as an educator that they're making those connections. So really a brilliant way to, um, as Nicole mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, apply theory to practice so you're in the theoretical realm of these biases and they exist they're identifying them not only in research articles but Mm -hmm. out in the field as well you seem to be really um really great at bridging those two for your students that's my hope i mean that's something i really (laughs) try to focus on yeah Yeah. that's great thank you um as in your role as director of music therapy and also in your service as diversity and inclusion officer for the university's uh, College of Fine Arts, what have you what have you noticed are the initiatives that are being developed and promoted at the college around diversity, race, inclusion? Uh, one initiative is the Unconscious Bias Initiative, which I believe UK is. Uh, implementing in a way that's more widespread than in many other places. Um, So I think that's a good place to start having those conversations, to start building that awareness. I think 
Um, I'm interested to see how we move into more of the uh, application of that information. You know, what do we do with that awareness of unconscious bias? Uh, But I think that's a really good first step. In addition to wanting to see the unconscious bias initiative implemented both at the college and across the university in more granular ways, what other initiatives would you like to see or partnerships would you like to see uh, between the College of Fine Arts and other units or across the university? I think um, making those connections between different units on campus who are doing important things is is such a key. And that's a goal of mine to try to connect the College of Fine Arts with Uh, organizations like the MLK Center or the Office of LGBTQ Resources and finding out how we can can work together and um, maybe co-sponsor events or or share information about what other units are doing. Um, Another one thing that I thought about last fall let me start that sentence over again. I'm going back, I'm, I'm thinking about, Nicole, the question about um, things that the university is doing. And one other um, one other event that I thought was really helpful this past fall was the um, Inclusive Leadership Forum. Uh, I thought the information presented and the, the panel speakers uh, were really informative and sparking some important conversations. So I was excited to get to attend that. Um, I think more events like that in the future would be wonderful. Um, I just read an article last week in on Inside Higher Ed that really got me thinking beyond just diversity and inclusion. I don't know if you've seen this one. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. But could you remind us of the article? Sure. So it's the article was by um, Daphina Lazarus Stewart. Uh, it's called The Language of Appeasement. And she posed some questions for universities to think about that I think could be really helpful. They re- they resonated with me. I know there are people who've been doing this for a lot longer than I have, but these um, I-, I found myself reading this thinking, this, this is really great to think about. So she says, diversity asks who's in the room. Equity responds, who's trying to get in the room but can't? Whose presence in the room is under constant threat of erasure? Inclusion asks, has everyone's ideas been heard? Justice responds, whose ideas won't be taken as seriously because they aren't in the majority? So I think that focus on equity and justice in addition to diversity and inclusion could be really helpful in trying to achieve the, the goals that come with diversity and inclusion. Absolutely. One of the things that I loved about that article is that it became very clear to me that the language we use affects the questions that we ask yeah. right. and the types of actions we're able to take based off of the questions we ask. And for right. someone, and for researchers, I think that that's, I think that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. It is. Absolutely. We're going to wrap this up in a couple minutes. Dr. Yinger, we just wanted to ask you um, if you could answer this final question. Can you share why you teach for racial and social justice? 
I think as an educator, I have an opportunity to impact the lives of not only the students I work with, but also the people that they'll encounter. And um, I mean, I, it's hard to say it without sounding lofty and cheesy, <laughs> but I, you know, I really hope that um, my students will make a difference in the world. And whether it's within their own therapeutic practice or their lives, their communities, uh, I hope that they will help make the changes that we need to happen. And I think that education is a good way to, to make that come about. That's great. That ties right into our next episode, which is a pedagogy of hope. Um, so that's, that's really wonderful to hear. Thank you. Dr. Yeager, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was produced by the University of Kentucky's Faculty Media Depot with special thanks to Stan Rosenbaum and Alex Cuddedine. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your questions and comments. You can visit our website, www.uky.edu slash CELT, C-E-L-T slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at UKCELT using the hashtag HigherJustice or like us on Facebook at UKCELT. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next time.